Good evening, everyone. Tonight I'd like to address Robert's question of the first night. Why is it so difficult? And also elaborate on Trudy's beginning investigation of the nature of mind and how we might be able to change a little bit this impossible human condition. I have come to the realization that the entire spiritual path can be summed up in a knock-knock joke. <laughs> so, the disciples come to the Master and they say, and the Master answers with the number one spiritual question. Who's there? <laughs> and if you don't get the joke, you have to be reborn over and over and over again <laughs> until you do get it. The spiritual path is really a question of identity. How we come to see ourselves and experience ourselves in the scheme of things, determines how we feel about our lives, how we behave, how we behave toward each other, toward the environment. It is really central to our existence. The question has been posed in many traditions. The Hopi say you must ask three questions. Where did I come from? Where am I going? Who am I? The Advaita Vedanta teachers might say, who is it that's asking this question, who am I? In other words, they would keep pulling the rug out from under you until your inquiry uh, kind of dissolves. In Zen, they have some wonderful ways of putting the question, who is it that's going in and out of these six sense doors? Who is it that's dragging this corpse around? Socrates said, know thyself. The Buddha said, a true happiness can only be found by eliminating the false conceit of I or self. Unfortunately, we're all born with a case of mistaken identity. All life has a sense of self, a sense of a boundary between itself and the world. Even a little single-celled being has a little membrane that it extends when there's food in the vicinity or retracts when there's some kind of danger or threat. It is part of what it means to be alive, to have a sense of self. It's not bad. But perhaps we have come to a place where the sense of self has grown too extreme and is no longer serving us, either our individual happiness or our ability to survive. That was the Buddha's great breakthrough. You know, he used this power of mindfulness to see through the boundary, to see through the membrane of self, 
and to realize that we co-arise with all things, that we are not this separate individual being that we always thought we were. And that sense, that small sense of self is very suffocating and unpleasant. I think it's interesting to realize that it didn't always feel this way to be somebody. The sense of self wasn't always like this. If you confronted a desert nomad or a serf of 500 years ago and said, what do you want to do with your life? They wouldn't have any idea what you were talking about. There was no enormous sense of a self-direction or self-creation that we now have. The self has its own history. Uh, this is Rollo May, great American psychologist, mythologist. He said, Americans cling to the myth of individualism as though it were the only normal way to live, unaware that it was unknown in the Middle Ages and would have been considered psychotic in classical Greece. <laughs> There's evidence from studies of early Greek literature that um, the, er, the Greeks in the early times thought all the voices in their heads were the voices of the gods, which we would now think of as schizophrenic. But now we think of all the voices in our heads as ours, which is its own kind of schizophrenia. We seem to have lost what the anthrop anthropologists called a participation mystique, a sense of being part of a, a group, a tribe, a nature, or the cosmos. We've come to an extreme sense of self in this land of individualized license plates. sometimes called the culture of narcissism. In Robert Bella's uh, study, The Habits of the Heart, he says, we're, we're the first society where people seek radical individual satisfaction. Everybody's looking for their own uh, accomplishment, their own realization, their own pleasure. So maybe we need a new story. I, I definitely think that that's the case. We need a new story to tell ourselves. We need an, an upgrade of our mythology, so to speak. Joseph Campbell said, the old gods are dead or dying. Everywhere people are searching, asking, what is the new mythology to be? The mythology of this unified earth as of one harmonious being. I think the story that we want to start telling ourselves lies largely in our new scientific understanding of who we are. And science is giving us this amazing story of how we co-arise, of how we are not separate, of how we are created. You know, the Buddha said we could never really understand our karma, we could never really un unravel it all. But now we're unraveling the genome, 
for instance, and finding out how connected we are to all the life that's lived on this planet, how we are built out of all that life. We now know that uh, our body is composed of heavy elements created in the early explosions of supernova in the, in the universe. That was where carbon was created, or oxygen was created. Thich Nhat Hanh says, once I was a cloud, once I was a rock, this is not poetry, this is science. We're composed of all natural earth ingredients. See, we, we don't even think of ourselves as, as sort of belonging to a planet, but we are, our identity, we are earthlings. I mean, if we find life on another planet, then we're going to have to become earthling identified, you know. If we find life in another galaxy, we're going to have to become galaxy identified, which would be Milky Wayans, you know, we would. <laughs> but we are composed of the elements of this planet. Uh, your, your bones are calcium, phosphate, silicates, uh, nitrogen, various uh, elements found in the earth. The, the clay of earth literally mysteriously molded into your shape. Most of your body is liquid. Most of that liquid has the chemical consistency of the oceans. We sweat and cry seawater. We're not just on the earth. We're of the earth. We're like earth sitting on earth. Earth walking on earth. At least in this incarnation, we are earthlings. And we are built of all the life that came before us. You know that inside your skull right now there are three brains. Not one, three. The reptilian brain, the brain stem, the mammalian brain, the limbic system, and the neomammalian brain, the new human brain. And they grew up in the same order they grew in evolution. They grew up in, in, in us, in each of us, in, the, in our development. And one brain doesn't override the other brains. They are intimately interconnected with each other. And there's a lot of speculation among scientists that we use our new human brain mostly to make excuses for the behavior generated by the other two brains. <laughs> That we are not really rational animals, we're rationalizing animals. <laughs> I'd like to read you this uh, statement, the last paragraph of The Origin of Species by Charles Darwin. This is his sec 200th, the 200th anniversary of his birth. Um, because it, this story is so important and is, is such a new story, we, we haven't even begun to assimilate its meaning or embody what it has to teach us. This is the last paragraph. There is a simple grandeur in this view of life. 
There is a simple grandeur in this view of life with its powers of growth, assimilation, reproduction, being originally breathed into matter under one or a few forms. And while this our planet has gone circling on according to fixed laws and land and water in a cycle of changes have gone on replacing each other from so simple an origin through the process of gradual selection of infinitesimal changes, endless forms, most beautiful and wonderful, have been evolved. That's us. Endless forms, most beautiful and wonderful, have been evolved. This story is very forgiving. I think the main message is you are not your fault. There were a hundred million generations of dinosaurs. There were about 50 million generations of mammals before humans came along. We've had maybe 20 or 30 thousand generations of modern Homo sapiens. We just got these big brains. We don't know how to use them very well yet. They didn't come with a good instruction manual. You are not your fault. Sometimes I think, you know, in, in future, in the far distant future, there will be beings, maybe they'll look a little like us, and they'll be born with mindfulness. It'll be part of the equipment. And they'll look back at us and they'll say, oh, they had to struggle to, their legs in this position and sat for hours <laughs> trying to get a moment of mindfulness, a moment of this double consciousness. Those poor beings. But this new story really tells us that we're related to all things and it tells us that we're part of a project that's much bigger than our little lives and that we appear as part of this grand ongoing show. We arise out of all these causes and conditions and then perhaps like most uh, species, like 99% of all the species that have ever lived, we will, we will be gone too. Now, this story, I think, can be very liberating. But the information can lie rusting in our neocortex. You know, it can, it can remain as information. How do we take that understanding and begin to live it, begin to incorporate it into the marrow of our being so that we behave knowing that we are co-arising with all things and knowing that we are related to all the other life of the planet and, and forgiving each other because we know who we are. That's where the Dharma comes in. That's where the Buddha comes in. Alan Watts said, we don't need a new Bible. We need a new experience of what it means to be I. The Buddha laid out the path in the Satipatthana Sutra, the four foundations of mindfulness. 
which I think can be seen as an evolutionary journey, starting out with the first foundation, body and breath, and then uh, the basic instincts of pleasant and unpleasant and the push and pull that, that so begins all of our behavior, and then emotions and moods, and then the conceptual mind. It really is a, a story of evolution. And the Buddha was like a scientist. He was like a biologist. He doesn't talk about cosmic stuff. If you look at the Pali Canon, he talks about our experience in this body with these senses. That's where you will find your liberation. I think of it, of, of his process, of his exercises, of the methods we're using as being kind of like a naturalist. You know, you're going into the wilderness of yourself with a notebook and you're, you're going to see what's going on in there without, you know, with a scientist's objectivity, being as objective as you can be about yourself as the subject. Hmm, okay, there's some bear scat over there and, uh, you know, <laughs> that road uh, was, uh, goes under that rock over there and... And as we explore ourselves, the Buddha asks us to ask, he wants us to ask this question, this construction, self, what is its cause, its arising, its ancestry, its origin? He says if we begin to ask that question, we will come to understand this is not I, this is not mine, this is not myself. In this process, we will begin to understand that we are part of the life of this planet, that we have a species self. We will begin to gain what I think of as evolutionary wisdom. And we will perhaps find some kind of liberation, some kind of freedom in knowing that not only are we part of this, this vast show, this evolving of wondrous, beautiful and wondrous forms, but um, that we must understand this and we must embody this in some way if we are to survive and this experiment is to continue. So, let's go in together a little bit. The body and breath. Start with the breath. I began my meditation practice as almost everyone here, I would guess, started. Pay attention to your breath using it as a concentration object. And it's a wonderful concentration object. It's a neutral, fairly neutral, and it's there all the time, and, uh, you know, we can feel it, and we're not doing it. Over the years, I, I began to feel my breath not as a, a concentration object, but also as a sign of life announcing to me part of my identity. I am one of the live ones. 
the breath carrying with it the mystery. You know, it's more and more it's become the center of my identity. Descartes should have said, I breathe, therefore I am. You know, you can breathe without thinking, but you can't think without breathing. With a little reflection, I, I realized that this breath is connecting me to all the life on this planet that breathes, especially the plant kingdom. We are exchanging nutrients with every breath. The planet itself breathes on, on the light side. There's always more oxygen emitted on the dark side, more carbon dioxide. It's like the, the earth itself breathing as it revolves around. And with every breath, I can feel like I am a cell in this single living organism, Gaia. We get, you know, about 15 million breaths in an average life. Do you know what million you're on? And, you know, I don't know anything about my past lives or my future lives. As far as I know, it could be that, you know, I'm going to go through these 13 million and then I'm not going to have any more breaths for all of eternity. You know, that's it. And so this breath becomes very precious. Kind of precious. I got 15 million. I mean, <laughs> semi-precious. It's a semi-precious breath. But a similar shift of identity happens uh, or has happened over the years through awareness of my body. My first meditation practice was with SN Goenka doing the body scan, and we would keep moving our mind throughout the body, feeling the sensations in the body. And after a while of doing that, uh, the body, I began to experience my body not as a thing, but as a process. The solidity dissolved. There was just a process going on here. Uh, it would, and and we we would sit there and be scanning the body and feeling just this massive tingling sensations. And Goenka would be sitting up in front with his deep baritone going, "Anicca, Anicca." It's all disappearing. Can't hold on to a second of your experience, which you begin to really, uh, really begin to learn in all of uh, the objects of meditation because you see they are all like that. Thoughts and, you know, sometimes a sore knee sticks around for a while, but, you know, it's still changing inside of it. I read recently that, you know, we have a hundred trillion cells in our body and every cell goes through about 4,000 events every second. Proteins are created and uh, uh, hormones are secreted and signals are sent and things are moving in and out of each of these cells so that every second there are something like four quadrillion events happening inside of you. 
be mindful. Try to be mindful. <laughs> so, you know, as you feel your body, you can begin to question, where did this body come from? What is its origin? What is its cause? As the Buddha wants us to ask. Well, consider your development in the womb. The, st the story of evolution, you know, is, is sort of like our collective autobiography. And we go through it. We go through this story. We go through this process, all of us, as we develop as an embryo. We start out as a single cell, the egg, which gets fertilized and then grows into a group of cells and a... Uh, eventually into a, a kind of tubular, worm-like body, and then uh, it, it develops uh, rudimentary fins and uh, webbed fingers uh, as we cycle through the DNA of reptiles and amphibians and fish. And, we, and even uh, in later stages of the embryo, we, we, we resemble the embryos of chickens and pigs. And we cycle through the DNA of almost all creatures as we develop in the womb. And then, of course, we emerge out of the amniotic fluid, out of the ocean, and land in the earth, on the earth. I'm really fascinated by how things happened in nature and uh, I read recently about our heads. And, you know, we're pretty identified with our heads. We think that's where we live. You know, heads are us. <laughs> well, uh, they now think the first heads appeared on these marine creatures, and they were extra clumps of cells that grew around the mouth of the creature so that the, the mouth could be manipulated more easily to get the food and bring it in. And then, of course, the senses began to develop also around the mouth and that extra group of cells, you know, so you could hear and see the food or smell the food. And actually, it, in the ocean, you couldn't smell it, but see it and hear it. And uh, essentially, the head is here to eat better, you know? <laughs> And also, to see if there's any prey coming to eat you. You know, this is a very unromantic view of who we are, but that's exactly what the Buddha wanted. He wanted to demystify and depersonalize, desentimentalize this life. The Buddha said, and this always amazes me, the Buddha said, this body is not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to causes and conditions. I can see him and Charlie Darwin just say, yeah, all right, you know, <laughs> they'd be buddies. They'd be big time buddies. You know, what's interesting and, and somewhat puzzling is that we went for so much of our history without kind of getting it, that we emerged out of other forms of life. I mean, 
was just a a hundred hundred and fifty years ago that people said, yeah, the the apes, you know, there's a little maybe, you know. Look at the other creatures. They all have the same floor plan we do. Insects, uh, birds, all almost all other mammals. You have a head on one end and a, you know, a tailpipe on the other end or a tail. We have a rudimentary kind of tail that doesn't actually appear. Uh, and then these limbs, these motive, motional, motion, uh, creating limbs that extend out of the body. And the, you know, the senses usually gathered around the head. You wouldn't want to, you know, to have your smeller in the back <laughs> because then you'd have to back up to smell something. And if it was edible, then you'd have to turn around and eat. I mean, nature designed, nature designed. <laughs> this is the one. I got it. <laughs> Every retreat, I have to crack Robert up, and and that this is this is it. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> uh, nature found this 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 design and uses it over and over and over again they've even found that we share what are called toolkit genes with many other creatures these these genes they take them out like a, a gene that it will tell a fruit fly to grow a wing they'll take that gene and they'll insert it in a frog and the frog will go frog leg but based on the information of that gene that says express a limb here and that these are the same genes in us as they are in frogs and in fruit flies. And we share so much, share so much with other life. Diane Ackerman. It's easy to spot life. The push to birth is a giveaway. The urge to break or squeeze toward daylight through shells, seeds, vaginal tracts. So is the hunger for growth, for dividing and multiplying. So too the tendency to separate, to make boundaries, membranes, skin, but also to join, to merge, knot, pool, flock, swarm. Likewise, the impulse to fidget among creatures, to tremble, blink, shimmer, wobble, shiver, flex, and clench. And the call to voice, to signal, hoot, howl, hiss, chirp, bark, wail. We did not have to wait for modern biology to tell us that we are akin to other creatures. It was probably our first great thought with our totem systems and animal folk, folk tales. Across the illusions of form, there is kinship, a continuity that runs through all living things. This body is not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to causes and conditions. And during the body scan, and in later practices that I've done in the Dharma, I, I began to become aware of the second foundation of mindfulness, which is the 
sensations, uh, the Vedana, the sensations of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral. And uh, it was a matter of becoming aware of how these basic instincts of wanting more pleasure and wanting pain to go away run my life. These very, on this very basic instinctual level. This is a biologist and, and anthropologist, Melvin Connor. The motivational portions of the brain, particularly the hypothalamus, have characteristics relevant to the apparent chronic nature of human dissatisfaction. Experiments on the lateral hypothalamus suggest that our chronic internal state will be a vague mixture of anxiety and desire. Best described by the phrase, I want, spoken with or without an object for the verb. It's the way we're built. That's why it's so difficult. We want pleasure. We want pain to go away. It's perfectly natural. It is to be expected of us. Way before Freud or Darwin, Buddha understood. He, he said, uh, he called them underlying tendencies that when we feel pleasant sensations, we want more of them. And if we're not present and aware of that initial reaction of wanting more, it turns into grasping, it turns into obsession, it turns into suffering for us. And likewise, uh, pain, when we feel pain, we want it to go away. And uh, if we aren't present and seeing what's going on and how those instincts are working, we get caught up and uh, lost in the desires, uh, the, both the anxiety and the, um, the anxiety and the desire. It's really interesting to, to pay attention to that in, in your practice. Be aware of how much you want to adjust your body, how much you want to move it, how much it demands to be changed in its position because it begins to grow uncomfortable. See if you can just sit there with the discomfort, feeling that pull. Or how much of your thinking is planning your next pleasure, is thinking about your next pleasure. This is the ground of all of our experience. This is really, you know, the point where it begins. I think that's why the Buddha put so much emphasis on it, that if we can bring our attention and become more intimate with those initial reactions to things, we can begin to gain some freedom from what evolution has installed in our nervous system. Robert Thurman uh, said, meditation is an evolutionary sport. Third foundation of mindfulness, citta, citta nupasana, 
heart-mind, moods, emotions, mind states. It's sort of the, what you report on when you're asked the question, how are you? The latest scientific understanding has a very unromantic view of our cherished sentiments and emotions. In the book, The Emotional Brain by noted neuroscientist Joseph Ledoux, or Ledoux, I don't know how you pronounce it. Emotions are nothing more than the name we give to feelings associated with basic survival functions. When these functions come into consciousness, we give them the names that are, uh, that we call emotions. In other words, our cherished emotions are built on what, what are, is sometimes referred to as the four F's, the need for the four F's, feeding, fleeing, fighting, and procreation. <laughs> so in this view, in this view of, of emotion, anger is built on the protective instinct. You know, protecting your turf, protecting yourself, protecting your family. Anger. You want to be fierce. Uh, uh, affection an evolved aspect of the whole uh, family thing and the, you know, reproduction uh, and, the, and the bonding that's necessary for human, uh, humans to take care of their children. Or as Tina Turner, you know, saying, well, what's love got to do with it, you know? Emotions, the thing about emotions is that we feel them. When we're angry, blood flows to our hands so that we can pick up perhaps a weapon, strike out, our heartbeat increases. When we're afraid, blood goes to our large skeletal muscles, maybe to flee, to run away. With sadness, the body's metabolism slows down. There's a drop in energy, giving us time to, to be sad, to grieve. And we now really totally understand how everybody experiences mind, the same mind states. Where it, they're universal. Paul Ekman uh, understood this by studying facial expressions. Wonderful, uh, a wonderful life's work in, in revealing that we all understand emotions when we see them on people's faces. Disgust. <laughs> You know, you see somebody disgusted, the, the nose gets, goes up, you know, as if you're trying to avoid a noxious uh, odor. Disgusted. Uh, surprised, the eyes open wide to let more light in so you can really see what's going on. You know, I mean, all the, all the uh, reactions, the physical reactions, as well as the feelings, are very uh, useful. They're important. They, they have to do with, you know, us surviving. Um, Anger, snarl, the lips curl up, you show your teeth. The smile, 
All neurologically healthy babies begin smiling in the first few months of life. Uh, wonderful uh, statement here by this evolutionary biologist, Donald Simmons. He says, those first smiling exchanges between mother and baby are some of evolution's most beautiful duets. A brain wired to produce a specific expression interacting with another brain wired to feel intense pleasure at the sight of that expression. <laughs> they are the first unspoken, uh, first unspoken phenomes in the language of love. We're generally... Mind states are difficult to, to catch on to. We're usually not aware of them because we're inside of them, you know. We're caught in them and by them. So we, we usually don't pay much attention to our mind's condition. We are caught. Uh, the Buddha's instructions are very simple. To just be aware. He doesn't give you any magic pill that's going to get rid of uh, a particular mood or mind state. He says, no. Uh, a meditator knows a lustful mind as lustful, a mind free from lust as free from lust, uh, a hating mind as hating, a mind free from hate as free from hate. He even says, be aware of the degree of mindfulness in your mind as, an, as something to pay attention to. Uh, you know when the mind is distracted and when the mind is not distracted, uh, when the mind is deluded as, uh, as being deluded. It's a very simple and direct instruction to just be aware of what's going on at any given moment. You know, is your mind deluded right now? Is it mindful right now? Is it restless right now? Is it, what's going on right now? You know, and to just be aware of it and suddenly you realize somehow that, that whole Mood snuck in there and got a hold of me, and that's, that's who I am, that's how I feel right now. Just bringing attention to it is really a, a major insight, a major revelation. You begin to really see. I used to think that thinking was what guided my, my life, but the more I uh, have meditated and the more I've come into my body, and uh, been present for my feelings, the more I realize that emotions are really leading in the dance. Uh, what Mary Oliver calls the, uh, the world of lime and appetite, the oceanic fluids. It's that level that really is, is running the show. To remember that the emotional brain has been around for millions of years. The neocortex is, you know, Neo, it's new. We just got it. And I think that becoming more intimate with your emotional life also begins to break you out of your identification with your story. Your story is the, the one that you're telling yourself about your emotions and how you're, uh, how you're doing. Uh, but when you are aware of your emotional life, you really begin to feel that you're, par you're part of the world, that these are things that are going on in everyone, they're universal, that you begin to become acquainted with your species self. 
Okay. Fourth foundation. We're, 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 all, we're coming home. We're getting to the real problem now. It's not really just, it's not a, just a problem, you know? It's a, a blessing. It's, I mean, what, what phenomenal, complex creatures we are. Because most of all this is going on inside of us without us directing it. As you learn in meditation, one of the great revelations is you can sit there and you don't have to do a thing. You, as Robert was pointing out the other night, you know, your heart is beating and your breath is happening and thinking is going on and emotions are coming and going and, uh, and consciousness is there and, you know, you aren't necessary. <laughs> the thinking mind, the conceptualizing mind. I think that after years of meditation, one of the biggest changes in my life has been in my relationship to my thinking mind. We still live together, we're friends, but <laughs> no longer codependent. In fact, I think I started meditation due to the fact that I realized that I had a, my mind had a thinking problem, was a heavy thinker. Start thinking when I got up in the morning, would continue thinking in the middle of the afternoon, had to have a couple thoughts before I went to sleep at night. <laughs> I needed an intervention. So, meditation. And I think everything I needed to know about my mind, I learned at my first meditation retreat. I didn't, I don't embody, I didn't embody it after that first retreat, but I, I, I began to understand it. First of all, I discovered mindfulness, which is this power of mind to simply observe without reacting and without judging, without choosing. And, you know, I mean, what a gift to, to suddenly realize that you have this power. This is unique in, in history, you know, and uh, unique in our culture. I'm always shocked when I come and first sit down at a meditation retreat and realize how uh, my mind has been running on automatic and I have been not aware of it pretty much 100% of the time when I've, you know, been out there in the world. And then suddenly you come here and you realize that, uh, you know, you're not in control. It's a shock. This is uh, Tolku Ergen. The stream of thought surges through the mind of an ordinary person. There's no knowledge whatsoever about who is thinking, where the thought comes from, where the thought disappears. One has not even caught the scent of awareness, and the person is totally and mindlessly carried away by one thought after another. That is the common condition of humanity. No blame, you know, we can be forgiven, but we've been given the magic pill. We have discovered mindfulness, and perhaps we can intervene and find a way to learn how to ignore our thinking mind, ignore ourselves. Before meditation, I mean, I was completely identified with my thoughts, with every thought that came through, you know? I think it's a little ironic. I spent the first half of my life learning how to think, and now I'm spending the second half of my life learning how to ignore my thoughts. 
what was I thinking? You know, I mean. <laughs> now, I don't want to give, and I don't want to give the impression that thoughts are just bad. Thoughts are not bad. Uh, it's often uh, a misconception about meditation that we want to get rid of our thoughts. No, we want to expose our mind to itself. And by that seeing, we begin to loosen our attachment and our identification with everything that flows through our, our head. It no longer has the same power over, it, over us. I mean, as a species, you know, thoughts are, are our genius. Uh, we, we make up these complex symbols that carry meaning, information, and directions, and allows us this, these, these symbols allow us to share our information with each other and pass it on to future generations, next generations. But we, uh, as a species, we've grown to think that our uh, thinking makes us superior to the rest of creation. This is Charles Darwin from his secret notebooks. Why is thought, which is a secretion of the brain, deemed to be so much more wonderful than, say, gravity, which is a property of matter? It is only our arrogance, our admiration of ourselves. Or as Stephen Jay Gould says, you don't see an octopus going around being proud of its eight arms. <laughs> what he's saying is that, you know, uh, evolution is local adaptation. It fits life forms to their environment. And the thinking mind is basically an adaptive tool. That's how the Buddha saw the thinking mind. He said it was a sixth sense. He, he says there are six senses. Thinking mind is just a way of sensing and and uh, interpreting, reading and interpreting the world. I think it's very liberating to view thinking as a biological function, the brain doing its survival dance. It helps us to demystify and depersonalize all this thinking that we do. I try to imagine sometimes that what, 20,000 years ago, what were, what were our ancestors thinking, you know? Well, I wonder who's going on the hunt tomorrow, or uh, what color should I paint my spear, or uh, who's watching the fire. But now we think, what, what's our 501K, our love life, you know, grocery list. Basically, the same stuff, survival stuff. Sometimes take a, a session of meditation and count or see how many of your thoughts can fit under the category of survival thoughts. And uh, include, uh, you know, your place in the pecking order, I guess, as uh, part of your survival thinking. Okay. We aren't going to get into this. There's, it's really interesting sometime to, to read about the brain and what a phenomenal organ it is, how it processes an estimated 11 million bits of information a second, and then filters it and edits it and decides what you need to know this moment, and then flashes you a picture of it over and over and over again. And you hardly have to lift a finger. You know, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal instrument. four foundations. Evolutionary journey. Uh, 
One more thing here. This powerful sense of self that we have that uh, I started off talking about. We now have uh, some possible uh, source of this powerful sense of self. Noted neuroscientist Antonio Damasio claims that over millions of years our brains have learned how to create constantly changing maps of both our body and the environment. And according to Damasio, as these maps communicate with each other, they tell a continuous story of our organism as it moves through the world, creating a sense of self. So according to this, this explanation, the self is simply your body's way of taking care of itself, of surviving. Don't go there, move over here, do this, do that. So anyway, let that be a cautionary. Because you, you let go of the self at your own risk. So, as we do this meditation practice, as we go through these experiences of our body and our emotions and our thoughts and, and ask this question, what are their origin? What are their, how do they arise? Whose are they? Who owns them? I love the fact that the Buddha is always saying, well, if I really owned this body, I could make it be like this. Or, and you can imagine him somehow twisting himself around. You know, if, if I really owned this body, I could, tell, I could make it stop aging. I could make it, it wouldn't get tired. It wouldn't get sore. If I owned these emotions, I'd be happy all the time, wouldn't I? If you owned your emotions? No. This is not myself. This is part of the co-arising that occurs when we take this incarnation. We begin to realize that our individual human life is first and foremost life with all of the constraints and considerations that all of life has. Secondly, it is human. Only thirdly and narrowly is it individual. So you can use uh, my mantras, if you'd like. I'm perfectly human. Perfectly human. Not perfect. Perfectly human. Or it's only natural. Or you could switch them. It's perfectly natural. I'm only human, depending on what you want to emphasize. And let me say also, uh, using uh, these, the information and metaphors of modern biology, I think they're a powerful means of liberation. But they don't, uh, they don't dismiss the fact that there's something going on here that is very mysterious and wondrous that none of us know, none of us have a clue about. Uh, E.O. Wilson said, uh, imagining a human being emerging out of random chance in the universe is like imagining a hurricane blowing through a junkyard and producing a 747. <laughs> so even as we investigate and, and begin to understand this 
particular experience of being human on this planet, we also don't know what it all means, Mr. Natural. Uh, just one last thing, and uh, uh, the Buddha, you know, as he was uh, awakening, was challenged by Mara. The last challenge was, what right, Mara asks the Buddha, what right do you have to be awakened, to really understand yourself? And the Buddha reaches down and touches the earth. And it's interpreted as, the earth is my witness. I like to also think of it as, the earth grew this consciousness. That for three and a half billion years of evolution on this planet has grown this being that can really understand its own origins and free itself from its own past. And what a gift. Let's sit for a moment. Who's there? <laughs> 